Welcome to Construction Cash Flow. The faster cash flows, the faster wealth grows. I'm your host, Stu Davidson, and I'd like to take a moment to introduce our incredible sponsor, Know Your Numbers. Understanding your cash flow is the cornerstone of success. It's what Construction Cash Flow and Know Your Numbers are all about. For more about Know Your Numbers, click the Know Your Numbers link in the podcast notes to start your journey of financial enlightenment that could literally transform your business. In this episode, we'll unlock the secrets to financial success with none other than Rocky Lalvani. Rocky reveals how your money mindset is shaped and why understanding it is the first step to financial wisdom. We'll dive into the Profit First Mindset, a game changer for your business that will transform the way you handle your finances. And that's not all. We'll explore Rocky's daily routine, his adventures in self-discovery, and the challenges he's conquered. Plus, we'll delve into the industry's poor practices and how you can be part of the change. So tell us, tell us, Rocky, tell us your story, how you got to where you are now, and some of the challenges, and maybe some of the successes that you've had along the way. So we'll go all the way back. I'm an immigrant to the United States. My parents came from India a long, long time ago. The world was very different back then. So when they immigrated, you really didn't have the ability to convert currency, take money and all of that. So they basically started over uh, here in America and came after the American dream. So that's what I grew up with. I saw people who immigrated. They would hang out with their friends and relatives. And I watched them over time create success in their lives. And one of the things that they would do that I didn't realize till much, much later in life was it normal is they would get together with their friends and they would talk about how do you create success? How do you build wealth? How do you save money? How do you spend money? How do you make money? And so those were normal conversations that the adults had. And back then as kids, we didn't have cell phones, right? We didn't have the internet. We got stuck sitting on the floor listening to the adults talk, talk, talk. So there was a, a bit of indoctrination that occurred back then. And in looking back, I think it was quite helpful because it helped me to understand money, to understand opportunity, to see that anything you wanted was possible if you choose to go after it. And that was kind of the mindset. Like you have everything at your footstep, what are you going to do with it? And the expectation was you would go succeed. Now, somewhere along that line, I decided that I wanted to be wealthy as a kid, right? Uh, maybe all kids decide this. I don't know. But I always hustled to make a buck. So whether it was a paper route or just going, and I used to go into New York City, we lived close by, I would buy things wholesale and I would come back and I would sell it to my friends at 100% markup. So I was always the kid, both in high school and college, who was sitting on quite a big cash. I, I could live a good life because I was out hustling and making a buck. 
And one of the things that I, back then I was, I was a spender, right? I spent all the money I made, had fun. You know, you're a kid, you can do that. I went out and bought an Apple II computer. So this was one of the first Apple II computers. It had a whopping 4K, which, you know, today is, you can't even store a picture on 4K, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the early programs that I learned to play with on that was a program called VisiCalc. It was the first electronic spreadsheet. Now, I'm a nerd that way. Everything I do gets done on spreadsheets. And back then, like the adults started noticing, wait a minute, this kid knows how to use spreadsheets. I guess they had value in it. I didn't understand the value of it. And so I would be showing accountants, hey, here's how you go from paper ledger to electronic spreadsheets. And in college, I worked for a bank and they're like, you know how to do spreadsheets? I'm like, yeah. And they stick me in a room and say, go build all our spreadsheets. And originally, my idea was this is what I was going to do when I got out of college. I would go and, and do this, but I didn't understand the value. I didn't know how to market it, and I didn't realize what it did for people. And I think it was still early in the spectrum, and I just didn't realize the wave that was coming. I was brought up on, on the previous generation and their ideals, which dramatically changed. So that was kind of the backstory of, of how that is. I got out, I went to work for corporate. I will always say good is the enemy of great. When you're comfortable, you will not push to be great. And I had a very nice, comfortable life. I made tons of money, built my wealth. And then the conversation came, well, what do you really want to do? And it was through that that I realized people struggled with money. I learned about people's money mindsets and their behaviors around money, how a lot of that was built in childhood and how most people do not get good money messages in childhood. Um, they're told things like we can't afford that. Money doesn't grow on trees. Rich people are evil. Well, if these are all your behaviors around money and your programming, you're going to struggle with money as you get older. And what I also realized, though, is what Warren Buffett says. Nobody wants to get rich slowly. Everybody's looking for that quick fix, and the quick fix never works. And then I came to this aha moment, and, you know, the book Profit First was part of it, which I just assumed business owners understood the business of business. Like, you understood business. That's why you went into business. And I came to find out business people went into business to do what they love. And accounting, bookkeeping, and numbers was not on the list. And so they didn't do that. And because of that, I think that's why so many businesses struggle. And that's why they have so much trouble. And, and that's why they, they don't always survive. And so that kind of led me to kind of pivot to say, hey, I can help business owners. Profit First is a great way to do it. It takes my skills of knowing how to read spreadsheets because numbers tell me stories. I'm pretty, you know, I understand tax codes because I, I hate paying taxes. So I'm always trying to figure out how to pay less. <laughs> so it was just all these unique skills kind of came together. I found a place where people would value them and pay for them. And it was fun for me. And so all of that came together and, and I walked away from corporate started my own business and this is what we do. We've been at it for quite a few years and it's a lot of fun. Amazing story. And those early stories of 
entrepreneurship and and sitting around the the table talking about how we manage money our attitude towards money and you're quite right the the attitude towards money is an ingrained thing and even i'm one of those that had money money doesn't grow on trees and there should be a fair distribution and everyone should get the same and i i still struggle now with it. a money mindset it's it's something that's ingrained deep in the subconscious and even though consciously you're an entrepreneur or a business person it can still affect you and the way that you react around money has some real power because it's beyond i think it's beyond it gets in subconscious it's beyond thought and I think that's, you know, that's where I think a change in perception is is really important. Do you, I mean, before we get on to the profit first and, and the concepts around that, I mean, what's your view around that? You know, this this idea of money being so powerful in people's lives, they don't actually understand it from a conscious level. Well, and that is very true. A lot of these behaviors, and it's I think it's beyond money. It's if you look at all of your behaviors, they were all things that you learned as a child. And you essentially got this programming. The core programming comes by age seven. And then the secondary program comes roughly by the age of 13, which means that most of us are running on programming children. And if you don't challenge your children programming, then you know, this is why you're in this situation you are. Now, people think, wait, you're, you're a little nutty, but wait, think about this. When you first learned how to ride a bicycle, it was hard. And then once you did it, it was easy. When you first learned to drive a car, it was quite difficult. Today, at least here in the U.S., most people go from point A to point B, and they don't even remember the drive, right? They're too busy doing something else, listening to something else thinking about something else, and yet somehow you got from A to B. Well, that's because you've learned the programming of driving. But take that to every other part of your life. Most people go through their day on automatic programming. It's very little that they stop, think, challenge, and question what they are doing. And it's human nature. The mind is very lazy. It wants to conserve energy. And so that's what it does. It isn't until you're shocked, you know, a car horn goes off or somebody stops abruptly in front of you or something out of the ordinary sets off your system. You're just kind of flowing along. And so I think that is it's a major problem. And the first step is awareness. And then you've got to reprogram that programming in every part of your life. And once you start to do it in one part of your life, it starts to occur in all kinds of life. So most people limit themselves. I'm not good enough, or I couldn't do that, or I'm not worthy. All of that is the same concept. How would somebody who's, you know, clearly most of our program, as you say, programming is done by the time we're early teens or, you know, seven, 13, how would somebody who's now later on in life has always had money problems? How would they start to you know, reprogram themselves actually so that they could become successful in money matters? So I think the first thing is to sit down and have a conversation with yourself around where did my money behaviors come from? How did I get them? What are they? And do I still believe them? 
And most people don't even realize what's going on. They, they've never thought about it. So if you haven't taken the time to think about it, do that. And then just watch yourself throughout the day and ask people around you. So it's funny because if I go to an event and we have a conversation and money itself doesn't necessarily have to come up. Somebody might say something like, oh, I went to this fancy restaurant last night. We had a wonderful meal. Somebody else under their breath might mumble, oh, I could never afford that, right? You've got to listen to what you're saying. You're giving all the clues out. You've got to just tune into them and just look at the way you behave when the conversations of money come up. And sometimes we need somebody else to be our mirror to say, what are you hearing and what are you seeing in me? But I think it's the, it's taking the time to actually think through the topic. Ask yourself simply, what does money mean to me? Money is, and fill in the blank. And start to see what the words are that come up. And then and only then can you start to challenge them and say, is it true? And then you can make changes. Yeah, great advice. Taking that up a level, money starts with us as individuals. How does that kind of play out in an organization or a business or, in fact, an industry? I'm very interested in people's attitude to money in the construction industry and and the cash flow and profits in the construction industry. There is a perception of holding on and not passing that money down down the chain or down the line or to their suppliers they hold on just in case we valued something not quite right we don't we don't want to overvalue you know so in the construction industry there'll be monthly payments and 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 we don't want to pay over the odds you know so just in case we'll hold a bit back so that's the corporate attitude to to money but i'm really interested in hearing more about profit first and what that means and how it works well So that to me sounds like a scarcity mindset, right? You're always afraid that there's never going to be enough. And so you need to dig into that and ask yourself, why is that? And is that, is that something, I mean, it could be that people in the trades just by their upbringing that took them to the trades, maybe that's just what happened before. And, and that's the way it is. And so it just needs to be questioned. And that is the whole reason behind Profit First. Profit First is a mindset and a behavioral cash flow management system. It's designed because, you know, we're all human and we behave with money certain ways. And it it takes our human behaviors and instead of using them against us, it uses them to our advantage. And that's the whole concept of it. I like the idea of that because we quite often see money as just transactional, don't we? And we don't we don't really look at how we behave with money. And from our perspective, in terms of contracts in construction, so we start with the developer contract with the main contractor, and then the main contractor with the supplier network or the the, the supply chain or supply network, and they're contracted, and then they become transactional, and very rarely do we address those behavioral issues but it's very interesting i i did implement profit first a few years ago in a business of mine congrats it was very interesting and actually 
it took the stress out of doing the finances each week or each month because I had a structure and I think it you know I that was the way I perceived it I had a, a structure and something easy sat in my mind I could walk around with the figures in my head where I couldn't before and also they give me a discipline on how much I can spend on operations of the business which was fantastic discipline it also showed me where I need to make efficiencies if I or whether the business is viable actually once I've taken my profit out and everything else if my operations don't cover what I'm delivering is what I'm delivering a viable business those are yeah. all valid points what it does is it takes the emotion out of it it goes back to the basic math of your business and I think that's the number one problem to start with most people don't do the math of their business right? Your entire business is a math equation. So this goes beyond profit first. If you look at your business as a math equation and you look at each of the points of the math equation as a lever and you understand them, you start to see which levers have the most value. So let's just take this, for example, let's say I'm a tradesman. We'll keep it simple. For me, a lead is my phone rings and somebody says, can you help me? correct? Whatever your trade is. So that's one number and it's the first number. Now, the question is what drives the phone to ring? Maybe you've got advertising, website, leaflets, referrals. There's a whole bunch of things that drive that the number of times the phone rings. Now, once the phone rings, the question is how many of those people actually buy from you? And there's a percentage, right? So if I know the phone rings 10 times, and if the phone rings 10 times, one person will buy, now I know I have one customer for every 10 phone calls. I know the average customer spends X. So let's say that customer sends $1,000. So I have one phone call, 10 calls, go to one customer at $1,000. That means I make $1,000. Now, out of that thousand, let's just say my cost of goods and, and subcontractors, everything else is 50%, right? So now I know out of the thousand, I make 500 and the 500 has to cover my overhead. It has to cover my profit and it has to cover my pay. And if you've got loans, then it's got to cover your loans. If you've got other things, all of that comes out of that money. That's all pretty basic, simple math. Now, if I looked at that equation, somebody might come to me and say, well, I need the phone to ring 20 times so I can get two clients. Well, I would challenge that and say, wait a minute. If the phone rings 10 times and you only get one client, you're not very good at convincing clients. Is it a sales problem? Is it a pricing problem? Is it a, a timeliness of returning the phone call problem? Like, what can we do to change your behavior without spending any money to go from one to now two? Which means you haven't spent another dollar, you become more efficient and you've doubled your sales. That's what we talk about. That's what I think the real power comes into it of understanding your business. And then making sure that you have the right pricing that you can cover all the overhead of the cost of goods, the subcontractors, everybody below you, and that you have enough to run your business on. And if you don't have enough to run your business on, is your business fat? In other words, are you spending too much? 
or are your margins too slim and you need to up your prices? Let's continue with our fascinating discussion in a moment. But first, I'd like to give listeners the opportunity to dive into a world of financial enlightenment with our sponsor, Know Your Numbers. If you want to master your numbers and unlock your business's true potential, and if you're ready to take control of your financial destiny, click the Know Your Numbers link in the podcast notes to find out more. In the meantime, let's get back to our guest. Yeah, absolutely. And and the, as you say, it's trying to find a, a simple approach that people are going to, especially small business owners that may not look at their numbers quite so often. So they're driving operations, they're driving what's practical. And quite often it's a question of uh, let's work the money out at the end of the end of the month. We're not quite sure. We just hope that uh, we get a client coming or come off our website or give us a ring and you know hope yeah it's so not a business plan <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so 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 what talks typically what what sort of clients do you work with rocky so i tend to work with larger business owners the principles though that we teach and that we share and that are part of our course which is also available we go anywhere from startup to eight figure businesses and we have programs and products available for each of those, depending on where they are. At the core, though, is Profit First. So we really haven't talked about Profit First yet, have we? Should we talk a little about that? Yeah, let's talk a bit more about okay. Profit First. I'm really interested in the principles of that. So Profit First is a book by Mike Michalowicz. If all of you don't know, Mike Michalowicz is a serial entrepreneur. As a matter of fact, one of the companies he had was a forensic accounting firm. And they actually would go in and investigate when the numbers weren't adding up, right? So he investigated Enron. He'd investigate high-profile divorces, all this stuff. By the way, that company was not profitable. See, back then, Mike looked at profit as an event, not a habit. So Mike made his profit in that company when he sold it. He walked away with a lot of money, thought he was the smartest businessman in the world. And over the next couple of years, he made a whole bunch of business decisions that did not go well to the point that they came for the keys to the house and the car, right? He put it all on the line and lost it. And so through that process, he said, what did I do wrong? And one of his big ahas was my accountant gave me the wrong formula for profit. We are all told sales minus expenses equals profit. But where does that leave profit? As a leftover. The afterthought, as you mentioned, at the end of the month, let's see what's left. That's not the way you go into business. You say, I'm going to be profitable. You take your profit first. So Mike changed the equation. Sales minus profit equals expenses. And so we take our profit first. And that's basically what it is. And, and it's a basic, easy system to do that. So the system is not something Mike invented. He took general principles that have been around for hundreds of years and adapted it to business. So if y'all think back to the old days, maybe your grandparents, great-grandparents, when they got money and they got paid, they took their money and said, oh, I need money for rent. And they might have a rent envelope or a rent jar, and they put money in that, that can or that jar or that envelope for rent. 
and they put money in for groceries and they put money in for the utilities and they put money in for whatever it was that they needed it for. And when there was no more money in the food jar, well, you became more resourceful. You went to the back of the cupboard, right? You started eating what been sitting there a while or you figure out, you know, how to how to make your dollar stretch. And and that was the key to it. So he took that same concept. He applied it to business and he used bank accounts. So all the money comes into one big bank account called the income account. Every time you look at that account, you know how much money came in. It's clear as day how much money came in since the last time you looked. Then we take the money and the first thing we do is put profit aside. So we move our profit to a separate account. Whatever the percentages you said you were going to do, move it. Then we put money aside for your pay because most business owners pay themselves last, which is absurd. You need to pay yourself first because if your home life is not good, your work life's not good, right? Yeah. Pay yourself first. You've heard that. That's a standard business concept. Next, we put money aside for taxes. I don't know how it works where you are. Here, the IRS has guns. They come take your stuff away, right? And then what's left is for your spending. This is what you need to be more resourceful with, and you need to run your business on this. Now, in the trades, sometimes we will have an account, which is our cost of goods account. So let's say I'm building a deck, right? And I know the cost of materials when I bid it out is it's, again, I'm going to make simple numbers. It's a $1,000 job, and all my cost of materials is 400 Well, the first thing I'm going to do is put the 400 aside for my cost of materials because it's not my money, right? Then we'll go through the rest of this process. So in trade, some of people will do that as well. Now you know what you have to live within, and now you need to learn to be more resourceful. The biggest thing I get with my trades people, not so much on the professional side, but more on the doing side, is the infatuation with tools. I need a new tool and I need a new truck. And, you know, here's the thing. And, and, you know, I talk from an American perspective. A fancy pickup truck here in the United States, fully loaded, can be $100,000. What most business owners don't realize is if you need to pay for that $100,000 truck and you have a 10% profit margin, you need to sell a million dollars in revenue just to break even on the truck. Mm. You start thinking like that and you go, I don't think I need a new truck. <laughs> Too much work for that truck. And and you've got to start framing everything that way and thinking through it that way and realizing, hey, this is a lot more expensive than I thought it was. And how am I going to actually pay for it? So it takes the emotion out of it. And it's all really basic math. So it's not like it's complicated. This stuff is all addition, subtraction, you know, percentages. It's all pretty simple to do. And we make it easy for you. So that's the the essentially the profit first model. It's all based on Parkinson's law. So you're all in the trades. You get this, right? There's two questions you always ask, timeline and budget. Whatever the timeline budget are, that's what you do. If it's $100,000 in six months, it's $100,000 in six months. If it's 30 days and 20 grand, it's 30 days and 20 grand. You figure out how to get it done within the constraints. 
And that's what you have to do. That's a really good picture that you painted of the 10% profit to buy the 100 grand truck. And you'd have to do a million pounds worth of sales before you could pay for the truck. That is so vivid. That's such a great example. Putting aside for the suppliers is an interesting one. So in the UK, the culture in the construction industry is that the, the developer would pay the main contractor. Then the main contractor would pay the subcontractor. Then the subcontractor would pay the sub-subcontractor. And it goes on like that. What quite often happens is the contractor doesn't put the $400 to one side that he should be putting aside for the supply chain. He keeps it and he uses for his own, his own business purposes outside of the project. Mm -hmm. So there's the project bank account and then there's the operational bank account. And sometimes he'll use the supply chain money, the money that he's been paid to the supply chain, to go and make his own investment. So we'll go and buy a cash pro property for cash. Then he'll get it refinanced. Then the refinance money comes back out and then it goes back into the project. And the subcontractors had to wait longer for his money. And those very main contractors are the ones that are claiming that there's not enough margin in construction. We're only making 2% margin profit. We're only making 5% profit in construction, yet they're using supply chain for finance. They're not setting aside the finance for the supply chain. There's been, there was an incident recently of a large national contractor called Carillion. They were doing that very thing. They went bust, typical example, mm -hmm. and took all the millions and millions of, they owed millions of pounds, billions actually across the across all their projects. And the fallout of that was subcontractors went out of business as well, okay. you know. So, so it's a precarious uh, industry teetering, always teetering on the brink, low working margins, low cap working capital, low margins. And I've been trying to figure out how could we persuade the, the main contractors that are always complaining that they have a low profit margin and trying to make their margin elsewhere. What can we do to persuade them that, actually they'd make a bigger margin or they'd be it'd be more in their interest to set aside that pot of money before the supply chain in the long term it's the challenge and you don't you don't have to give a definitive answer but it's just really looking into it and kicking it around really i'll tell you how it gets done in the united states you don't pay me this week i don't show up next week it's that simple and we have a shortage of people doing the work. And so they're just like, look, if you don't pay us, we don't show up. And we'll move on to the next project. And there's so much work to be done and not enough people that if you want to run your business that way, you're not going to get the best tradespeople. You're going to get the worst the people who, you know, aren't that good, who can't find clients because their work quality is not so, so good. And that's what we see here. I don't, is that not the case? I mean, do you guys have an oversupply of, of workers or is it a shortage of workers? As, by the way, I think you've hit the nail on the head. If they want to keep a good supply chain, you know, they have to treat them well. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the drawbacks we have in the UK around walking off site, most standard contracts 
don't allow the subcontractor to walk off site. So there has to be, there's clauses in the contract that mean unless certain things have happened and processes have gone through, unless there's a breach of contract by the main contractor, then they can't walk, they can't walk off site without being in breach of contract themselves. So, so there is a difficulty around just downing tools and walking off because they'll be in breach of contract. Uh, and so that is one of the one of the drawbacks or one of the things that I think main contractors hang their hats on in in the UK is that they know they sign them up to terms and conditions that means that if they do want to walk off, they can't without being in breach of contract. Does the contract state payment terms? Yes. Yeah. Are they meeting the payment terms? They meet the payment terms, but what they do is they pay less. So they'll say, okay, we're not happy with this, we're not happy with that. Or they'll make some condition around, well, I don't think you've progressed as much as you think you have. We'll just hold back 5%. And then on the next valuation, we'll hold back 10 So they gradually creep it up. So they start with just a little bit. And as the project goes on, they're holding back more and more because there'll be variations on the project. So as the as the project goes on, the calculation of that variation is they'll use something like, oh, yeah, we haven't received the full substantiation of your cost for the variation and we dis- disagree with your figures on the variation. So they're finding something that they can negotiate with and they hold money back. But but what they're doing is they're still complying with the contract terms of payment, yet what they're doing is they're holding back. So as long as they issue a pay less notice, they're kind of in the clear pretty much even even if that pay less notice isn't justified so the only uh, remedy for the subcontractor in the uk in that situation is to go to adjudication the thing is we go into adjudication is it's an expensive process and it wipes many subcontractors out by doing it so honestly it comes down to pricing once you're in this business a while you know who pays and you know who doesn't Correct. Just say, hey, our our price is now 10% more. Take it or leave it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think subcontractors need to be a little bit more robust. Quite often they're having contracts which are imposed upon them. But I think that there's a growing movement of subcontractors that are now writing their own T's and C's, terms and conditions that they're going back to the main contract and saying, you know, we've read your contract in terms, but these are our main T's and C's. So we're the, we're the specialist. We know our trade. These are our terms and conditions. And, and they're making it their red line. So yeah. they're choosing who they work with. And if the main contract's not prepared to be flexible, then there's a growing tide of trades that are turning around saying, sorry, but we can't work with you. And, and, and that is what you have to do. Sorry, we can't work with you. And you go find better clients. And and that is the end of the day. That's what you do. I've got to believe that you've got the same issues we have here, which is we cannot find good skilled labor. Mm. Of And we can't find good professional labor. So if you show up and do the work, stop being a sub. Go. I mean, granted, you're not going to be able to do a big project, maybe. But you could go do projects that give you better return on your time. And so maybe you have to change your whole business model Mm. and rethink of who you work for, how you work, what you provide. 
you know, what's your differentiator? Because if you're just a commodity, you're screwed. You've got to figure out what your differentiator is and how you are going to get value above and beyond somebody else and do that. And honestly, the simplest way to deal with that, though, is from a simple red line standpoint is, okay, from now on, based on the payment schedule, any shortage is put in an escrow account with our PlaySex. So at least the the other company has to put the money out, regardless of whether they give it to you. That's fine. You don't agree, put it in escrow. You're not going to hold on to it. Do you know, that's a really good idea. I, I think that's a great thing to do. And I don't see that happening. Um so if they've got the money, should put it aside because quite often what happens is they won't pay it. They won't put it in escrow because they haven't got it because they've overstepped their budget. Mm-hmm. And then what they do is they actually terminate the at, towards the end of the project. They'll terminate the contract of the subcontractor or make the subcontractor go bust. So they don't have to pay it back. And then they will just get a new subcontractor on. So they've saved all that money. Don't, yeah. So escrow is a great idea. Don't yeah. work with these people. Bottom line, just don't work with them. Go find better clients and ha- know that you're better than that. I mean, it comes back to where we talked about mindset, right? Why do why do they accept such bad terms? Exactly. They're worried about whether they'll get another project. That's the thing. I think that's the key thing. They don't want to rock the boat. You're on a sinking ship. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What would you what would you say to the the large main contracting fraternity in in the UK that are constantly posting and complaining that we are, we're we only make two percent margin? You know, we're a low margin industry. What what would you say to one of those people? We don't work with two percent margin people. They clearly don't know how to do their job. Great answer. Great answer. I like that We don't one. work with them. Yeah. We only work with high margin people who know how to provide value. We are not in a race to the bottom. We're, we're, that's not the game we play. So if that's your game, great. Go find somebody to race to the bottom with you. So, Rocky, who, how would someone get in touch with you? How would they contact you for further advice or maybe take one of your courses or get you on board to give them some some advice, some counseling, some mentoring around around their money issues? Everything we do and what we talk about with our clients, we share on our podcast, Profit Answer Man. So you can learn for free. You can listen to hundreds of episodes and, you know, the first 13 episodes are all about profit first, how to implement. Mike McCallowitz is on the podcast. We, we go through a lot of that. And then we show you throughout the rest of the episodes what other people are doing and then give you all these different ideas about how to go out and increase your profitability. And we've got shows that are specific to the trades. A lot of them are more general, but they apply to everybody. So that's the best way for them to learn more. The website is profitcomesfirst.com. You can find everything you want there as well. Thank you, Rocky. That, I'm sure it's going to be really beneficial to a lot of, a lot of our listeners as well. So, Rocky, have you got time for a quick fire round? Sure. Okay. So here goes. First question. How do you start your day? So morning, I usually start 
by reading a little bit, usually motivational or religious material to kind of get the morning in the right mindset. I roll out of bed five days a week. I'm either at the gym or home exercising. So that's done first thing in the morning um, and getting rolled. And then once I'm back from that and get showered and ready, I go back and I spend another 15, 20 minutes doing reading, you know, just kind of easing into my day. So the morning time is a couple of hours before I will take my first call. When are you most productive? In the morning, like right after that, that, you know, that's where I'm going to be most productive. By the end of the day, I'm tired. Like things don't get done. And that's your most important things you got to do first thing. Because then they're done and and your hardest things you should do first. Because if you get your hardest thing done first, the rest of the day is downhill. What's something new happening in your life right now? So I think the thing that we're still working on is we finished the course and now we're working on all the marketing materials and everything else to do with that. And actually something new that we've started is a monthly Q&A call. So if you go to the podcast, it'll tell you how to sign up. But we have three monthly Q&A calls. Just hop on the call and ask your questions. So every month we're doing that now. What does adventure look like to you? You know, I'm in a different stage of life. (laughs) So I'm not trying to conquer mountains. I think it's more coming back to what we talked about. It's, It's the adventure inside, conquering myself and demons and and all those things and what is really the purpose of life and what are we all doing here it's more than working for two percent margin that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) what thing would you love to do that might surprise your friends and family so i don't think anything really surprises my family because we're pretty open and communicative but um, a couple years ago i started karate it was one of the things i always wanted to do with the kids never worked out. And then once they graduated and left, I'm like, well, I have time. I can go do this myself. So I joined and and that's been somewhat of an adventure. Name a challenge you overcame that changed your life. Oh, I think my biggest challenges in life have always come down to getting started, right? It wasn't until I was in my 40s that I bought my first rental property or did my first flip. But yet, when I was 20, I had my real estate license. I knew how to do all the work. It took forever for me to take the first step. And I think I've learned that for most people, the first step is the hardest. The rest becomes easy. And so for me, it's it's that constant challenge. I spent most of my life in corporate not running my own business because I couldn't figure out the first step. And I think in every part of my life, that is it. Once I've gotten through the first step, everything flies. But it's it's overcoming that hurdle, sometimes 10, 20 years in action. It's horrible. Who or what inspires and motivates you? I, I guess that's a couple of different things, right? Different questions. As my kids were growing up, I was inspired to be their dad and be with them as they were growing up. Now it's more about business. So learning from business leaders who are ahead of me 
and actually being able to take that knowledge and make it actionable for other business owners. Because like I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I couldn't understand how to make it actionable. Now I know how to make it actionable. But throughout that whole process, and I see so many business owners struggle with how do I make it actionable for me? And that's what, you know, I love doing what I do now. And it, the money part it doesn't even matter. Like it's not being done for money. It's being done because this is what I love doing. This is what brings me energy. My joy, I still want the money. No doubt about that. <laughs> but it's not the motivator. What does success mean to you? It's time freedom and the ability to say no, right? The ability to say, no, I don't work for 2% people. No, I'm not doing that. No, you know what? I'm busy today. Not happening. I go do what I want on my terms. And, and that's, I think, having time freedom and the ability to say no is truly what success is. It's not a fancy car or a fancy house. It's freedom. What advice would you give to your younger self? This is a tough one, right? Because if you give your advice to your younger self, you're going to change the trajectory. So now you're a different person. And that's a little bit scary, right? Because it changes a lot of things. You know, you ever watch the movie Back to the Future? They go back and they change something and everything goes wrong. So I, I don't know. I don't know that I want to change anything. I think the biggest lessons learned, though, more so is to just go take more chances, to try more things, and to understand your programming and to overcome it at a much earlier age. You know, by the time somebody graduates at 18 or 21 and gets out into the world, we're told all these stories. Here's the reality of them. For the most part, they're all lies, right? They don't apply to you. They don't matter. Just stop believing. Go find your path, not somebody else's. Rocky Lavani, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's been real education, a real pleasure. It's been great. You've been great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stu. Hey, can we can we ask for one more thank you? Yes, of course. Well, so if you're listening and you like this episode and you like Stu, say thank you. Hit the like button. Hit share. Give him some love, please. Thanks for joining us on Construction Cashflow, sponsored by Know Your Numbers. Remember, when you know your numbers, you're in control of your destiny. Keep building your success story. And don't forget to explore further by following the link in the podcast notes.